Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we explore the elusive nature of symbols and how we can strengthen our ability to perceive them. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. A symbol, then, is a living gestalt, or form, the sum total of a highly complex set of facts, which our intellect cannot master conceptually, and which therefore cannot be expressed in any other way than by the use of an image. So there's one subject that we haven't touched on yet in this podcast, and which is central to an understanding of the symbolic life. And that, of course, is the nature of the symbol. When we talk about a symbol, what kind of thing are we referring to? Well, Jungian psychology has a very specific understanding of what a symbol is. And this is what is expressed in that opening quote from Jung, which comes from a seminar that he gave in 1932 on the psychology of Kundalini Yoga. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that quote. But the best way to get a sense of what a symbol is is really to do it through story. And there's a story about Jung himself that I think really captures not only the nature of the symbol, but also gets to the essence of what he's trying to say in that quote. And this story comes from Lawrence Vanderpost, was a South African writer and explorer and a good friend of Jung's later in his life. Vanderpost wrote a biography of Jung called Jung and the Story of Our Time. And in that book, he tells the account of his first meeting with the famous psychologist. And as he tells it, it was at a large gathering, a dinner or a reception, and Everyone is seated around this large table. Vanderpost is ushered in and seated beside Jung, who at that moment is deep in conversation with a distinguished professor. And they're talking about the meaning of fire for so-called 
primitive peoples. And the professor is apparently going on about his understanding of the topic while Jung patiently listens to him. And then finally, Jung stops the professor and says, it is hellishly difficult to know what you are trying to get at in all this, unless you can tell me what fire means, not to primitive people, but to you yourself. It's its meaning for you, not to others that matters. And Vanderpost writes that the professor was somewhat taken aback by this statement and replied as, as though it was the most obvious thing in the world, saying, why, it means energy, of course. And to this, Jung good-humoredly suggests that the professor's understanding has left far too much out of the picture. And he goes on to say something to the effect that the experience of fire is full of the resonance of the earliest experience of such things like the need for light in the darkness, the need for warmth against cold, the need for protection against the beasts that prowl in the dark of night. Add to this the importance of cooking food and the transformation of elements and the ever-present danger of destruction should fire ever rage out of control. All this and more are evoked by the experience of fire and are part of its symbolic meaning. And of course, the, the obvious point about this story is that the professor has turned the image and experience of fire into an abstraction, into a concept. But fire is not a concept. It's a living reality full of emotional and existential value. And what Jung is driving at is that when considering the symbolic nature of such a reality, the task is not to understand it, not to narrowly define it or translate it into a concept. The task is to relate to it in its full range of meanings, to feel into one's relationship with it. As he says, it's its meaning for you, not to others, that matters. Only when an image resounds with that kind of full range of meanings can it be said to be a symbol. And it's for this reason that Jung, in that opening quote, calls the symbol a living gestalt. It's not an idea that we use for our own purposes. It's something with a life of its own and to which we come into relationship. And the other aspect that comes through in this story about Jung is the nature of the symbol as what he calls the sum total of a highly complex set of facts. All of those qualities of fire that he speaks about 
in his conversation with the professor, light in the darkness, warmth against cold, cooking of food, all of those aspects and more are expressed by the symbol of fire. And in fact, that more is the crucial quality of any symbol. In his book, Man and His Symbols, Jung makes the following statement. He says, a word or an image is symbolic when it implies something more than its obvious and immediate meaning. The symbol is that which connects us to an experience, but the whole of the experience is always more than the symbolic image itself can ultimately contain. In other words, fire, to stick with the example we've been using, always means more than just fire. At the same time, though, despite this quality of more, the image of fire is indispensable to the experience being communicated through it. The symbol expresses something ultimately incommunicable and is the best possible expression for the experience which cannot really be expressed in any other way. And if all of this seems hard to clearly comprehend, that's because it is. The nature of the symbol defies precise definitions. In a sense, if you know what a symbol means, then you don't really know what a symbol means. When we encounter symbols in our dreams or in the stories of myth and religion, something always remains outside of our grasp, at least conceptually. What can't be grasped by the head must be intuited by the heart. What the symbol always includes is something of the mystery that surrounds us and in which we live each moment of our lives. We've come to regard our words and concepts as accurate reflections of things, but they're just as likely to obscure reality as they are to reveal it. And the great religious philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel gives beautiful expression to the experience of the ineffable that suffuses the world around us, but of which we're not always aware. And he says this, he says, when trying to hold an interview with reality face to face, without the aid of either words or concepts, we realize that what is intelligible to our mind is but a thin surface of the profoundly undisclosed, a ripple of inveterate silence that remains immune to curiosity and inquisitiveness, like distant foliage 
in the dark. What we can know and name barely approaches the wholeness of what we actually encounter. And it's the symbol that reaches out for these depths. The reach of the symbol extends far beyond that of our concepts and our categories and reminds us of the more that exists in all things. It points beyond the forms of things to the life that lives within and behind them what Heschel calls the profoundly undisclosed. When we let a symbol be a living reality for ourselves, it lifts us up out of the banal experience of the everyday to the larger life of the soul. Symbols, then, bear more relation to poetic images than they do to intellectual concepts. The symbol does not define. It suggests. It hints. It invites. And it inspires. It brings knowledge, but it's not knowledge born of the clear light of the rational. In a sense, we could say that it provides a kind of horizon by which we can orient ourselves and towards which we can move. Here's a poem by a Japanese poet, Izumi Shikibu, that I think expresses well just this quality of the symbol. And she writes this. The way I must enter leads through darkness to darkness. O moon above the mountain's rim, please shine a little further on my path. The way that I must enter leads through darkness to darkness. O moon above the mountain's rim, please shine a little further on my path. Now, for the most part, I just want to let this poem speak for itself. I don't want to wrench it out of the poetic and into the conceptual. When encountering a symbol, it's good to avoid the temptation of analysis, which is of the head, and to stay with resonance, which speaks to the heart. Like poetry, symbols thwart the rational and calculating mind. And moving too quickly to analysis, to understanding, can be a defense against experiencing the suggestive power of the image. 
If you feel moved by a poem, even when you can't put into words or can't quite understand why you're moved, then you're probably on the right track. As Emily Dickinson once wrote, if I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. The experience of the symbol is something like that. Of course, the problem here is that we're very used to orienting ourselves through the action of the rational mind. Staying with the power of the symbol requires the willingness on our part to be open and the courage to let ourselves be vulnerable to it on a visceral and feeling level. The poem by Shikibu is full of longing. The need for light that it expresses is palpable. And that longing and need bursts forth into a plea to the moon to continue to give out its light. And the role of the moon is like the role of the symbol. Neither one is the source of the light that they cast, but they both reflect that light in a meaningful way. And that makes it possible to see a little further along this road that we're traveling. So the takeaway here comes in the form of a general principle, which may sound obvious, but nevertheless, it's imperative. And that is that the symbolic life requires a sensitivity toward symbols. This is an art, frankly, that's largely been forgotten in our world. And it's one that takes practice and patience to recover. We need to learn how to see things in a way that lets some of their original mystery before they were veiled by names and concepts, break through once again. We need something like what I would call a practice of poetry. Now that, that might take the form of reading or listening to poems, sure, but it might also be spending time with the imagery in the stories of myth and religion or the visual imagery of great art, or the auditory imagery of beautiful music. One great source of images that will thwart your impulse for understanding, of course, can be found nightly in your own dreams. Dreams are like Zen koans produced by your own psyche. They short-circuit the rational, analytic mind and call forth the creative, intuitive mind. Now, I've deliberately tried to avoid, in this episode, putting forward 
too neat of a definition of the symbol. And this is because the symbolic life is not a program of mastery over life, but a way of living in relation to mystery. We don't have to have everything figured out. The goal is not to think life, but to be able to live it. We don't need to be in possession of the light. We need to learn where to look so that we can see the light and then let it guide us a little further down the path. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have questions about anything you heard in the episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag Digital Jung. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored in this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available now from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.